Hey, so um, some of you I haven't met before. My name is Sarah. I'm the Connections Pastor here at Awaken. So uh, pretty much anything to do with uh, people uh, or anything to do with um, operations, tasks, that's me. So um, often when you get in touch with the office, I'm your sort of first port of call. So um, I'm just going to shorten this because I'm not very tall. Uh, awesome. Um, yes, yeah, so for those who don't know me, um, yeah, I've been married to Ian for 18 years, so he's in with Kids Church today. They're watching a movie, so that's keeping them. I was like, oh, you can't really preach Revelation really fast, so it probably is easier without all the kids in the room. Um, and uh, we've got three kids. Um, tomorrow one is turning 16. I don't feel old enough to have a 16-year-old either. Like, how did that happen? I've been watching on my um, Facebook all their, like, antenatal group babies have all been, like, turning 16. I'm like, I haven't recognised these children anymore because I haven't seen half of them since I was toddlers, so it's quite mental. Uh, and I've been on staff here at Awaken for, um, oh, sorry, I've got a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old as well. Um, and I've been on staff here at Awaken, I think, for about six years. Um, so for some of you, you might have been coming for a few weeks, those that are new, and I haven't really been around, so um, I took some extended leave at the end of last year just because it was, you know, time. Uh, and uh, the last few weeks we've been serving at different places, helping with Scripture Union Camp. Um, and last week I was a masterton for New Wine, um, by representing the Church Education Commission. Um, and that was a real blessing. Like, I went with my, like, work hat on. Like, I'm ready to, like, network and meet people and find volunteers um, and actually, God just totally ambushed me, and it was really refreshing, uh, really beautiful, and I just really felt like I reconnected uh, with worship in a way that I haven't for a really long time, and so that was just, um, yeah, just a real massive blessing. Um, so this week, Paul is away. Um, he's doing some training with uh, Norm McLeod, um, and he will be starting a series called, he hasn't actually seen the slides, so I only put this together yesterday, so he doesn't know the advertising yet for his next series, but... Um, <laughs> It's going to be uh, on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, so letters to the churches, um, and it's the, will I listen to God? Uh, there's lots of refrains in there about, you know, are you listening to the Spirit? Uh, so that's where Paul will be taking us the next few weeks. Um, he, he sent me a blurb this week, and it said, the one cry from God's heart to each believer in these churches is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The implication is to hear and to trust and to obey the word of God over and above all other voices and words. This is consistent through the scriptural story that listening to God is life to us and not listening is death. I encourage you to be open to allow the spirit to grow your intentional listening to God with desire and devotion. So that will kick off with Paul from next week. Um, and so in prep for this, uh, you know, this next series, I thought, all right, well, I'll start reading, you know, through Revelation, and then Paul asked if I could preach this week, and I thought, well, maybe it's a great opportunity to do a little bit of an introduction to Revelation. Um, let's see if we can set it up a little bit. Um, I've got a few images. For those that are on the live stream, they won't see all of these images, but um, Revelation is just such an incredibly visually busy book, and so um, just a few images that I would share today. There's a um, an artist, and it's called, um, their website, I think, is something like Full of Eyes, um, and so there's just some of these images that I'll share this morning, just in the background as I'm sharing, um, just because I just think they're really just beautiful representations of Jesus. Um, all right, so uh, in the past, I've got myself into some scuffles uh, around the book of Revelation. Um, I've been a bit naive, sometimes assuming that those that think differently to me might want to hear what I've learned about the book of Revelation over the last decade or two. Uh, and this usually ends up with not nice words on Facebook and the occasional blocking. 
Uh, some have been around a while, might have seen some of that. Um, I just get a bit passionate and excited about it, and I, yeah, just naive. Um, Adam Grant, who's an organisational psychologist, he's written a bit on the topic of our reluctance to change our opinions. Uh, he's got a great book called Think Again, and he says, when it comes to our knowledge and opinions, we tend to stick to our guns. Psychologists calls this seizing and freezing. We favour the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt, and we let our beliefs get brittle long before our bones. We laugh at people who still use Windows 95, yet we still cling to opinions that we formed in 1995. We listen to views that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. And he goes on to say, as we think and talk, we often slip into the mindsets of three different professions, preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. In each of these modes, we take on a particular identity and a distinct set of tools. We go into preacher mode when our sacred beliefs are in jeopardy. We deliver sermons to protect and promote our ideals. We enter prosecutor mode when we recognize flaws in other people's reasoning. We marshal arguments to prove them wrong and win our case. And we shift into politician mode when we're seeking to win over an audience. We campaign and lobby for the approval of our constituents. Um, so I've definitely been all three of those when challenged with new ideas or I met someone who has, in my opinion, the wrong idea. Uh, so Adam encourages us to move into a different way of thinking, into scientist mode, where when we're searching for truth, we're curious and open-handed with the outcomes. So all that said, my purpose this morning is not to convince anyone of anything, uh, but I'd love to share some of the insights I've picked up. Uh, that have helped remove some of the barriers for me in reading this book of Revelation. Um, I don't believe uh, that what we believe about end times uh, is a salvation issue, so I want to say that right from, like, I don't, you know, we've all got different opinions, that's all cool, because this is not a salvation issue we're talking about this morning. Um, There's this great quote that I've always found really helpful. In essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. And in all things, charity. So let's not get stuck this morning on, on any of our differences. Uh, so when I was 15, uh, there was a guy called Barry Smith. Has anyone heard of Barry Smith, some of the, some of the folk in the room? Um, so I don't quite know. End Times Preacher is all up there in the category I've got for him because it's the only bits I, you know, caught of him in my teens. Uh, I heard him preach a number of times at the local apostolic church. Um, I was doing morning church in a Presbyterian church, and I'd go to the apostolic church in the evening, so I was a pretty confused teenager anyway. Um, and I remember he'd have these giant banners that was kind of depicting the different stages of the end time, or at least the stages that he believed it was all going to work out in. Um, and it was 1999, so it was in the height of the panic around Y2K. I mean, our teenagers won't even know what that was. Um, so there were many prophets and doomsday folk making calls about what was to come that year. Fear was being played on big time, both outside and inside the church. I became a Christian in that season. I'd always believed in God and figured I'd become a Christian one day, but I kind of wanted to do it after I'd gone through, you know, the fun teen years. <laughs> um, but I was spurred, however, to make a decision earlier rather than later. Um, so fear probably did get me across the line, but in reality it was love that kept me in. The love of a small rural Southland church that actually, that community was probably what kept me in the body. I think I would have disappeared pretty quickly if I had just been saved by fear. I'd been a Christian for three weeks when I paid a close friend in chocolate to write uh, a speech for me. It was our English, fifth form English um, speech time. 
and I hate it. I, hate, I still hate speeches, anything where you're being marked. Um, so she wrote the speech for me on the end times, which I then delivered. I didn't get a very good score. Uh, and it was complete with references to the rapture, to tribulation, to the antichrist, the mark of the beast, uh, lots of things that I won't be talking about today. Um, so I remember during this time in 1999, another friend's parents were stockpiling canned goods uh, because, you know, their thinking was, well, you know, we're going to end up with the mark of the beast. We're not going to be able to buy food. They were all panicking around all of that. And I remember being really baffled because I was looking at them going, hold on, but you say that God loves us, so why are you freaking out and, like, stocking up goods like God's going to suddenly not look after you? Uh, at the same time, the Left Behind series was gaining traction. Um, you know, Revelation was depicted as the timeline to the end of the world. Um, and the books would get passed around our youth group. You know, we were all reading them as quick as we could to pass them on to the next person. And it was all pretty terrifying, you know. Uh, years of tribulation, microchips in our hands, plagues, antichrist, new world order. There was just so much fear. Watch for the signs so you won't be found on the wrong team at the end of days. Um, and I've seen in the last few years in the wake of the pandemic, some of these conversations have come back around again. Uh, in 2011, I got to study Revelation at Kerry Baptist College. Uh, and it turned my v view of Revelation upside down. Uh, my lecturer would call it the fifth gospel of Jesus, which I really loved it, you know. It's the revelation of Jesus. The gospels focus on an earthly Jesus, but Revelation focuses on a heavenly Jesus. Uh, so last night when I was kind of done with looking at my sermon, I was scrolling Instagram and I saw this meme and I thought it was kind of good. Uh, so Frodo, he says, go back, Sam. I am interpreting scripture alone. Uh, and Sam says, of course you are, I'm coming with you. Uh, and on Sam it says, unacknowledged cultural assumptions and paradigms. Because isn't that true? When we read scripture, uh, not in community, often we are bringing a whole lot of baggage into it uh, that we're never supposed to. That's not how we should be reading scripture. Um, so whilst I was at Bible college, it helped me to quit reading Revelation through my um, shady 21st century Western evangelical white Christian lens. But I got a glimpse of what it looked like for the recipients of this letter. John, the author, he was exiled to an island and was writing pastorally to a scraggly bunch of churches in Western Turkey. This was not a message for unbelievers. Some had kept their love on, some had compromised, and all were feeling the reality of what it truly meant uh, to be a Christian in an unforgiving and harsh world. He used a common literary style, apocalyptic writing, which is a genre that rose in the 400-year gap between the last um, book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Obviously, we see bits of apocalyptic writing in Daniel uh, and other places too, but in that gap when they're sort of waiting for the Messiah and things all looked a bit bleak, this, this writing became more popular. My lecturer at Bible College, Laurie Guy, wrote, Revelation is an imaginative and evocative book designed to present the triumph of God. This triumph is based on past history especially on the risen Lord Jesus, and it will be absolute in eternity. And presenting the victory of God to a pressurized and persecuted people, it draws heavily from the Old Testament. This deeply resonates with his audience and inspires hope. And that hope intensifies as the audience hears of the Lamb who was slain, but who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the uh, message paraphrase of the Bible, he said, Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. 
I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. So Revelation was uh, written to comfort faithful believers and unsettle the comfortable believers, to encourage believers to remain faithful to Jesus and to warn those who attempted to give in and compromise with the empire of oppression they were under. And that's kind of the same for us right now. Um, as I was reading, uh, prepping for this morning, I struggled in what order to share my three points this morning um, because they each kind of need to be first. Uh, they each impact each other, so hopefully you can all track with me this morning as we move through. Um, and there will be bunches of, yeah, photos and, and there will be a video as well. So when we read the Bible, it's important to know what we are reading. The 66 books of the Bible are not the same genre. I don't know if any of you guys have noticed that when you're reading through. You can't read you know, Genesis the same way you would read the historical books or read Psalms. Or There's a lot going on. Um, and sometimes there's multiple genres within just a single book of the Bible. So Revelation, it is a letter, but it's also prophetic and apocalyptic in nature. There are other pieces of writing of the same genre. For example, another piece of apocalyptic literature for Ezra was written around the same time, and it has really strong parallels. So a tree of life, people clothed in white, a great multitude on Mount Zion praising God, a voice that sounds like the sound of many waters, a pit of torment, um, and, and this line, as for the lion you saw, this is the Messiah. Um, so it was likely that they didn't, uh, Revelation and for Ezra didn't borrow from one another, but they both pulled from that same sort of historical well. Um, so Revelation is not in, entirely unique in what and uh, how it was written. Uh, so apocalyp apocalyptic literature would offer a critique of the oppressors. It would encourage resistance and faithful confidence in God's ultimate defeat of evil. It usually was articulated in symbolic, often cryptic language. And rather than looking at the end of the world, apocalyptic literature was looking forward to the end of empire. The present might be dark and pessimistic, but God was still on the throne. God will bring final intervention. Revelation presents Christ who is crucified, triumphant, and returning in glory. Jesus will reign forever, and so will we if we persist faithfully. Um, and so, as I sort of alluded to before, Revelation was written to be listened to in community as a total piece of work, not the piecemeal way we try to read it. You know, we try to read a few verses here, a few verses there, and try to figure out what on earth is going on. Um, so I just want us um, now for the next few minutes to watch a video from the Bible Project. They did a beautiful video on apocalyptic literature, and I think it was just really helpful to explain it. So uh, let's watch them instead of listening to me for a few minutes. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No, apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example... Take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. 
Oh, right, he's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on? Yeah, apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible, like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Ah, and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe, ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right, it's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah, now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter one, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. 
But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation. The death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is, and there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear, to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. Awesome. <clears throat> uh, so that's the Bible Project. If you just put them into YouTube, Bible Project, um, Apocalyptic, that will come up. So uh, I have watched that video so many times. Every time I watch it, I think there's something new and great in there. Um, so we need to understand that while Revelation was written for us, it wasn't written to us. Uh, when I was in Bible college, um, and I've heard this illustration multiple times since, there was this sort of correlation, this comparison with political cartoons um, people are often depicted as animals in political cartoons. Um, in the US, um, you'll see that often, I think, is it the Democratic donkey and the Republican elephant? Um, the UK, often represented as a bulldog. Uh, Aussies, often depicted as kangaroos. And uh, Kiwi politicians, obviously, as Kiwis. Um, here we go. Here's one. The United States says that under the Five Eyes Agreement, it's their way or the her way. I can't pronounce it. Who's got one of those phones? I don't know. Uh, this is around the five, tra uh, five Eyes Agreement. But anyway, you've got the bulldog, you've got a beaver, which is Canada, and, and your kangaroo and your kiwi. But the thing about um, cartoons is we get a little bit different, distant in time, and it gets a little bit trickier to understand them. Um, so I delve back into some internet archives to find this one. Does anyone know who the uh, horse is? Very good. Charlotte knows Muldoon. I had to Google. So... <laughs> um, so this, and it says down the bottom, uh, so on his trough, it says planning council guidelines, uh, and it says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So this is from 1979, which was five years before I was born. I don't know, context, I had to Google. I, apparently, it's because he didn't listen to the planning council. That's, I don't know any more information than that. Um, but you can see, just in the space of 40-something um, years, like a lot of meaning gets lost. A lot of us in the room have no idea who this animal is that's being represented. Um, yeah, so we don't usually think that politicians are actually animals, uh, but the further we get away from it, the less we're able to interpret the cartoons without any extra content, context. Um, so let's remember that, you know, in Revelation, there was a, an audience, an original audience to it, and so a lot of the symbolism was likely familiar for them. Um, and just as the Bible Project guys mentioned, many of these symbols are traced right through the Bible, so empire, Babylon, exodus, beast, chaotic waters, it's all actually already there in Scripture. Uh, so Richard Buckham, he's a theologian who's written on um, Revelation. He says, once we begin to appreciate the source of these images in the Hebrew Bible and in current Greco-Roman culture of John's readers, we can realize that they're not meant to be read as literal descriptions or as secret encoded descriptions these images must be read for their theological meaning and their power to, ex to evoke response. 
So Revelation has a lot to say to Christians of all generations, but first we must anchor this in the, this book in the historical context of the author, John's time, place, and audience. Revelation didn't just fall out of the sky, and it would be egocentric for us to read it as if it was speaking to us alone. The letter would make no sense to the original uh, recipients, and they would have no reason to preserve it. It wouldn't have had any value for them. Could you imagine receiving a letter that's meant for 2,000 years during the line? Down the line, you're not going to keep that if it makes no sense to you. Uh, so Revelation was firstly written to seven churches in Western Turkey. Um, and we can see a lot about what life was like through the New Testament. Um, and the fate of Jesus' 12 disciples gives us a little bit of an insight to what life was like for someone who was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, they were stoned, stabbed, beheaded, crucified. Uh, their faith wasn't for those who wished to save their lives. Um, at least one Christian had been killed in Pergamum, which was a city in Western Turkey, one of the churches that John writes to. Um, the persecution was likely local rather than global at that point. Um, and in Thyatira, believers were having to make decisions between being part of a powerful guild uh, or being able to continue their trade. If you wanted to be in a trade, you'd be part of a guild, which meant going and eating at the pagan temples, which that's, like, that's where you would go and you would socialise. Um, so they're having to make some real economic decisions, um, you know, uh, faith or economic security, one way or the other. Um, some of the cities that uh, John was writing to were wealthy, some were not, um, and some of them had been ravaged by various nat uh, natural events. Um, and John himself had been exiled. Nero, he ruled uh, the Roman Empire for 14 years. In AD 460, there was a, um, a fire that ravaged much of Rome. Uh, Rumours quickly spread that Nero had, set the, you know, had ordered these fires to happen because he wanted to rebuild uh, some of Rome to be you know, grander uh, and more impressive. So to take the heat off himself, uh, he blamed the Christians, which then led to some um, really horrific deaths amongst the Christian community. Uh, and it was likely that the apostles Peter and Paul were killed in this period as well. Um, four years later, there was a revolt, and Nero committed suicide, but there was a lot of um, doubt whether or not he was really dead, and there was sort of this expectation that he would reappear. Uh, so then it's no surprise that we see in Revelation that the beast had a mortal wound that was healed. Uh, in Domitian, he was likely the emperor when Revelation was written. There's a few sort of, you know, discussions around dates. Domitian may have been the emperor when it was written. Um, and he commanded that he be addressed as our Lord and God. Um, so writings after Domitian paint him as a real monster, um, but it was also, uh, I guess, a bit of a tradition to trash uh, in writings the emperor that had gone out. So uh, you have to take all of that with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, but it's no wonder that John referred to Rome as Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon hundreds of years previously, and Rome committed a parallel act in AD 70. Empire had been a steady, oppressive foe in their memory. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And there was no separation between state and religion at that time. Pagan temples, images of deities, um, idolatrous practices abounded in their cities. Emperor worship was developing. You could worship all sorts of various gods, um, and you should worship your emperor. Um, and you could even worship Roma, which was the personification of Rome, which is a really smart idea if you're leading, you know, this empire, you get people worshipping it, you know, let's create allegiance in these ways. Um, in the book, Understanding the Book of Revelation, the authors wrote, the imperial cult was a force to be reckoned with, 
precisely because it united political, social, and economic elements into a single dominating religious force. So obviously for us and today, you know, we're reading back into this and you've got to see how interwoven all of that is. Today we, we read it and, you know, we don't have, there is a separation between state and religion. Um, and so we can preach, in New Zealand anyway, we can practice our faith without, uh, you know, any persecution or any ties to our economic well-being. Um, after the destruction of Jerusalem, Judaism got more strict about who was a true Jew. So the Christians kind of got to hover under that banner there for a while. But after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, that disappeared. So Christians were driven out of the synagogues. And with that, they lost their exemption from having to participate in cultic practices and emperor worship. So there was a temptation for the oppressed and poor Christians to not make waves, to not resist the powerful force that was Rome. But they needed to choose, as do we, the lamb or the beast. Um, I've got two images here that I really love. So this here, this photo represents 340 biblical cross references. Um, so scripture is always using scripture um, all over the show. And you see it is down that far end of Revelation. Like there is a lot uh, pointing back into the rest of Scripture from the book of Revelation. Um, And this is another one that's probably a bit dark to see on those sides. But it has uh, every every chapter of the Bible along the bottom. You can see that really big line at the bottom um, is uh, Psalm 119. Um, But here you can see this just cross-referencing all over the Bible, which is why I think Scripture is so incredible, because it's just like I can't get my head around how much, yeah, it just, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's not, you know, his stories, oh, it was just written by man. I'm like, man, there's just so much God in this, the way it's been put together. Uh, So the numbers seem to be disputed, uh, but so there's 404 verses in Revelation, and I've seen numbers between 500 and 1,000 allusions from the Old Testament in Revelation. So statistically, in every single verse of Revelation, there are one to two allusions back to the Old Testament, every verse. Um, so the reason Revelation was so steeped in the Old Testament is because the author, John, was also deeply steeped in the Old Testament. Um, Revelation was likely one of the uh, sorry, Revelation was one of the likely one of the last books of our New Testament to be written, um, but they weren't put together into one book for quite a long time afterwards. It was another century or two before you know canon, the Bible started coming together. So churches across. Uh, you know, churches everywhere, they had sort of bits of the New Testament, but none of them would have had all of the New Testament. Um, and so they were all still relying on, this, on the Old Testament. The, that was the scripture they had. Um, so you can see why John was relying on the Old Testament so much. And so considering what we know about the overarching story of God and the language of the Old Testament, there was no surprise we see echoes and allusions in Revelation. But we can miss it if we're trying to read it through our 21st century lenses. There are plenty of key things to be looking for, and I've said before, you know, God above all, Babylon, Exodus, creation, beasts, it's all in there, and it's all pointing backwards as well as forwards. Um, so this morning, to return to the scripture that Karen read this morning, um, I just thought it'd be good for us to look at a, a couple of verses and uh, where we can see old, the Old Testament in those. Um, I really struggled to choose a passage. I was like, well, I'm going to use Revelation 1, because, you know, Paul will be doing the next couple of chapters in the next few weeks, but I'm like... Man, when you really read Revelation, it's like, man, there's so much cool stuff happening here. I want to share all of it, but you don't want to be here till Tuesday. So uh, here we go. 
So this is the letter from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace be to you, the one who is, who always was, who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Uh, in Exodus uh, 3 verse 14, we have, uh, you know, the burning bush scene with Moses encountering God. And it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Um, and at the time that um, John writing Revelation, uh, Zeus was, Zeus who was, you know, he was a god. Uh, he was described as Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus shall be, O mighty Zeus. So Zeus was considered most high at that time. Uh, so I love when you see bits in scripture where there's kind of this my God's better than your God kind of attitude. So much of even Genesis is the my God's bigger than your God. Uh, Michael Heiser, he wrote, John was making a specific, bold theological claim in the Greco-Roman world that the God of Israel is what Zeus claimed to be, the one who is, was, and who is coming. And as such, the God of Israel is the, most tr- uh, is the true most high. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, the ruler of all kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. John here is breaking out in praise. Um, we can call this, this is, this is doxology. Uh, so in Exodus 11 verse 5, if you know the Exodus story, if you've watched uh, Prince of Egypt, all the firstborn sons will die from every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. So Christ is our Passover lamb. Um, and yeah, of course, you know, the Passover and that, looking back at that time in Exodus when they were um, freed, you know, Jesus is the atonement lamb. All of this imagery is being picked up on in Revelation. Um, and Jesus is the faithful witness. Um, and the word witness uh, comes from the Greek word uh, which we take today to mean martyr. So, yeah, Jesus, uh, he was a martyr for, for us. You know, he has ransomed us. Um, and we are also called to be witnesses uh, despite the high cost. Um, and in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, it says, I will make him my firstborn son, the mightiest king on earth. So there is no ruler above Jesus. Regardless of how heavy the weight of suffering is, he has the final word. And of course, he loves us. He has freed us from our sin. He has restored our relationship with God through his death. And verse 6, he has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Uh, in Exodus 19, it's this, the, the picture in Mount Sinai. Um, it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and keep my commandment, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So in Revelation, we see this, re- this theme of redemption, which is the theme of the Exodus story. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has brought about a new Exodus. He has reordered power, and as a result, the church has a royal and priestly vocation. Um, and I guess notice the change of tense too. In 
uh, Exodus, it says, you will be my kingdom of priests. Um, But here in Revelation, um, he has made us a kingdom of priests. So it has been accomplished by what Jesus has done. Uh, J.K. Beale, he wrote, the church is identified also with Christ as, as a priest, and now it exercises its role as priest by maintaining a faithful witness to the world and willingness to suffer for Christ. It defeats the strategy of the enemy, even while suffering apparent defeat, yet still ruling in a kingdom, as Christ did on the cross. Verse 7, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. So Daniel 7, um, it says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. There's a lot of Daniel in the book of Revelation. In Zechariah 12, 10, uh, it says, Then I'll pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him um, as, for on, as for an only son. They'll grieve bitterly for him as for the firstborn son who has died. You're like catching this, this like, these allusions from the Old Testament that John is pulling in um, to Revelation. Uh, and this one here, ma'am. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I'm the one who, who is, who always was, and is still to come the Almighty One. So again, they're using that language of I am, you know, pointing back to that picture of, of Moses meeting the I am at the burning bush. And Isaiah 41, 4, it says, Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am He. Isaiah 43, And you have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God, there never has been, and there never will be. Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, I am the first and the last, there is no other God. And finally, Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O family of Jacob, Israel my chosen one, I alone am God, the first and the last. Um, And I can't help but have a sneak forwards as well in Revelation 22. uh, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Um, Just love those scriptures, just God pointing out just how good he is, and he repeats it over and over and over again. Um, So the salutation, these these verses that we've just read at the start of the letter, immediately anchor in this threefold description, Alpha and Omega, God of the past, present, and future, and Lord God, the Almighty, ruler over all. Uh, yeah, see some of you guys looking at this picture. It's quite cool. I just love the, uh, the imagery of um, clinging to Christ um, whilst the darkness is trying to overcome, but it cannot. Um, all right, so God is both the author and the finisher. Jesus is fully God. God exists from everlasting to everlasting, unbound by time and space. From the narrative that started in Genesis until now and whatever is to come, Jesus is Lord over it all. God is Lord over history. He is able to deliver his people from empire. No empire has ultimately stood against God. They all fall. And when we read the Old Testament, we see countless moments of crisis and hopelessness. 
but then we also see moments of divine intervention. And John's churches were also in crisis with their backs to the wall. The Old Testament and Revelation gave them courage that they would be triumphant in the end. So all of that said, Revelation is a book of hope. It's a pastoral letter with specific imagery for a particular group of people. And we read that with a bit of a grimy lens. We're fairly removed from it. But that doesn't mean it can't speak to us here and now. Uh, In their book, New Testament in its World, um, Tom Wright and Michael Bird, they wrote, The book is designed to inspire its readers and reaffirm their allegiance to God and his Messiah. And that in that light, to praise the faithful, shame the wicked, and steal the resolve of the churches, to resist the monstrous and idolatrous Roman power. So Babylon is any power. Uh, So the quote, any society that wears Babylon's cap must wear it. I think we often forget, especially I think in you know, New Zealand, when we're not grumpy with our government, when things are going okay, we can forget that, yep, we are all an empire. So after lamenting, um, oh, so this is uh, this beautiful quote from Eugene Peterson. Um, he was lamenting our condition that we are thick-skinned to the Spirit's breeze, dull-eared to the, to the heaven-declared glory of God. And then he asks, is there no vision that can open our ears to the abundant life of redemption in which we are immersed by Christ's covenant? Is there no trumpet that can wake us up to the intricacies of grace, the profundities of peace, and the repeated and unrepeatable instances of love that are under and around and over us? For me and for many, St. John's revelation has done it. So this is a revelation of Jesus, Jesus the slain lamb, Jesus who did what we could not Jesus alone who is to be exalted. Um, And, you know, like this image, we are called to cling to the hope of Jesus. Remain faithful and not compromise with any empire that oppresses. Um, So this morning we're going to come into a time of worship and uh, communion. Um, So for those who may not have been here before, so uh, we're just going to have, I'm going to pray in a moment, we're just going to have a time of um, worship and you're just welcome to come uh, and take communion as you'd like. Um. But I encourage you to ponder the faithfulness of God um, and the triumph of Jesus. Um, And perhaps you can consider what God is inviting you into today. Um, Or perhaps you might just have praise for all that he has done. Um, And I hope that, you know, as we go forward reading Revelation, that we're not trying to look for uh, straight away necessarily what this could mean or, or, you know, who is this talking about, but actually just hear that this is a pastoral letter from someone who deeply cares for those that are around him who are suffering. And that if we're reading it through the lens of uh, through the lens of the Bible that we have, and understanding the genre and who it was written to, that you know maybe we can uh, not be scared of Revelation so much anymore, but actually just really uh, see Jesus and through it all, because it is His fifth gospel. It is to reveal Him, not who the enemy might be, but actually let's just get our eyes back on Him. Um, So, Father, I just want to thank you that, Father, I thank you for the book of Revelation, that there is this beautiful hope that is given to us, that Revelation, a a letter that is over and above what we see of you, Jesus, and uh, the Gospels, that we have this to reignite our imagination, to give us hope for the future, uh, to encourage us to remain steadfast, that our allegiance would be with you and not with any empires of the world. Um, Father, I just pray as we come into communion that we can stop and we can pause, and uh, Jesus, we can remember what you have done through your body and through your blood, 
Uh, we thank you. F- thank you for all that. There is not enough words. There is not enough songs. Um, yeah, just thank you, Jesus. Uh, may our eyes be on you uh, for our hope that we would cling to you and to nothing else. Amen. Uh, I did want to read one last verse, which is great. So he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, Lord. Uh, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. All right, you're...